Welcome to Rational in Portland, and thanks for joining us. Today, my guests are Kevin Dahlgren and Andrea Suarez, who work on solving the homeless crisis. Andrea is the founder of We Heart Seattle, a nonprofit focused on cleaning up garbage and solutions for homeless ensconced in tents. Kevin is the founder of We Heart Portland, a nonprofit that shares the same goal. Kevin and Andrea's work is controversial. You can find them criticized on Twitter and recently by an article in Willamette Week that we'll discuss in this episode. Why is Kevin and Andrea's work controversial? Their goal is to try to get the homeless out of tents, and they clean up abandoned encampments, which critics argue weren't abandoned at all. They clean up the areas around the camp, sometimes right next to the tents, which critics deem houseless belongings. Kevin and Andrea also interact with the homeless with the goal of getting them out of tents. They inquire about whether they are ready for drug rehabilitation or mental health treatment and work to connect them with those resources. They reunite homeless people with family members, which critics deride as shipping the homeless out of state. Kevin and Andrea are featured in news articles. Uh, One of the most recent ones is from Northwest Examiner, which is a neighborhood paper here in Portland, Oregon. This is from June 2nd, 2022, and the title is Cleaning Up with Kindness. Citizens sick of waiting for big money to turn Portland's chaotic homeless crisis around are rolling up their sleeves, burying their souls, and diving in. An organization launched in Seattle two years ago that cleaned up 30 parks and is keeping them that way is creating a second beachhead in Portland. We Heart Portland was formed last month. Thanks to the Pearl District Neighborhood Association's $10,000 donation, seed money to expand the We Heart Seattle organization. According to this article, with the help of We Heart Seattle, the Pearl District Neighborhood Association president, Stan Pinkin, says, we've removed nearly a ton of trash along both sides of Interstate 405 between Everett and Gleason Streets, while at the same time providing outreach to those living in tents in unsanitary conditions surrounded by vast accumulations of trash. The article explains that Kevin Dahlgren put his thoughts in a nine-point plan to clean up the homeless encampments and sent it to Mayor Shane Bemis of Gresham in 2018. According to this article, Bemis read it and hired Kevin to head up the homeless services. Within months, the 4.7-mile Springwater Trail section in Gresham was cleared of encampments and trash. Today, there is a stark line at the Portland boundary where the trail remains unsafe and often impassable. This article from the Northwest Examiner says, the pair have grown bolder in spreading their message that government and big nonprofits form a homeless industrial complex, consuming vast resources while the problem grows. What once was a cause has evolved into a multi-million dollar industry, Dahlgren said. Harm reduction, or housing first policies, aimed at first getting people into housing have failed, he said, because they have not been backed up by mental health, addiction treatment, and regular contact with a single social worker they can trust. People living on the street also need daily activity and a way to constructively fill their time, Dahlgren and Suarez say, even if it's just handcrafts or routine chores. 
The growing crisis amid a flood of funding tells Dahlgren that maybe money isn't the solution. Above all, it should be a clarion to new ways of thinking. If what we're trying isn't working, try something different, he said. You can't solve a problem unless you understand the problem. And to understand it, you have to be out there every day, boots on the ground, getting to know the people and their stories and building that trust. If they trust you and respect you, they'll tell you everything. And the messages Dahlgren and Suarez are hearing is that the present system isn't working for anyone, including the people it supposedly serves. Kevin has been out there doing this work for the city of Gresham for a while now. There's an article December 19th, 2019 in, from coin.com. The headline is Gresham helps homeless get back on their feet for good. And it talks about how Gresham was realizing that nothing it was doing work was working. And so they hired a team comprised of people that included Kevin that have helped nearly, according to this article, 140 people secure long-term housing in 2019. Of one woman in particular, Kevin says, I met her Monday. By Monday evening, we had gotten her an ID, health insurance, a doctor, a counselor, a phone, a five-day hotel stay. Coin6 News also spoke with this woman. She said she was going to start her new job later that night. She said, there's no way I could have done this by myself. There's just no way, she said. And when I don't want to do things, to know that Kevin is there saying, come on, I'm going to be there in a half hour. Get on up. Let's keep pushing. The homeless services team started in 2015 in Gresham when there were 138 people living homeless. Today, that program estimates the number is down to 50 and tents have all but disappeared. The Gresham leaders credit funding from the city and the county as well as various partnerships for the ability to take such quick action without putting people on wait lists and without providing only temporary relief. And that is why they say these people do not end up back on the streets. And just one more article to prime you for why I'm so excited about this interview. It's from Como News, November 30th, 2021. And the headline is Man at Odds with Ballard Neighbors Leaves Neighborhood with Help from Nonprofit. This is up in Washington State. The article says Charles Woodward is letting go of his past and volunteers with We Heart Seattle, that's Andrea's group, which Kevin also helps out with, are now trying to help him rebuild his future. Piece by piece, he kept saying, you can take this, says Andrea Suarez, the nonprofit group's founder. For the past two weekends, Suarez and her crew removed thousands of pounds of wood and scrap metal from his encampment, including all the lawnmowers that once occupied the corner of 8th Avenue Northwest and 49th Street. This is why neighbors gave him the nickname Lawnmower Man. The article continues saying that there were neighbors that were calling Como News for help and complaining about Woodward, the Lawnmower Man, being a menace to the community, playing loud music at night, threatening anyone who approached him. The article says, he said to me, Andrea, I'm tired of being angry, and I think he's just worn out, says Suarez. Suarez says after watching our story, she wanted to take a different approach. We treated him with dignity and respect. We bought most of his lawnmowers and stereo as well, says Suarez. But along with his personal touch, she says the threats by vigilantes also helped him realize it was time to move on. Recently, someone came by and shattered his van's window. 
The city also tried to offer him housing and services, but that didn't work. Neighbors say they're just amazed at what this nonprofit accomplished in such a short amount of time. Gave him something the city wasn't giving him. That's why they had an impact and the city didn't, says Chris Miller, owner of CM Miller Finishing and Designs. We Heart Seattle's success is also getting the attention of council member Dan Strauss, who represents Ballard. Just a few weeks ago, Suarez says Strauss told her group to stand down with their encampment cleanups and outreach programs, saying it was a distraction. But on Monday, he sent Coma News a statement that reads, in part, I'm glad when volunteers are able to interact positively with unsheltered residents, redeploying efforts where they're needed, and leaving sites of critical focus to government and community leaders. Suarez says at least that's a start for now. And see, Kevin and Andrea are getting this pushback from city leaders, but this article concludes by saying they were able to get the lawnmower man a temporary apartment and get him some kind of stable housing. So ultimately, I just thought their work was extremely interesting, that their different philosophical approach, so different from what we see in the Pacific Northwest, certainly here in Portland, where the um, loudest, most dominant ideas are housing first for people in tent encampments and just leaving them alone, basically ignoring them, allowing them to sleep where they are. Uh, some organizations bring them things like socks and food, but that's sort of the extent of the intervention. There really is no encouragement to leave the tent, at least that I'm aware of. And I think that's part of why Kevin and Andrea are so controversial. So you won't want to miss this. Stay tuned for Kevin Dahlgren and Andrea Suarez. Today I have Kevin Dahlgren and Andrea Suarez. They are from We Heart Portland and We Heart Seattle. Kevin also works for the city of Gresham. And Andrea has been, I know, has been doing this work for about two years now, completely unpaid. Is that right, Andrea? That is correct. So how did you get... I mean, Andrea, how did you get involved in this non-paid, very difficult work with, do we say homeless or houseless? It's keyless. Keyless folks. I learned that one in Portland from a keyless man. He said, that tent is my home. This community is my house, I guess. And I'm a keyless man. So okay, learned it here first. Key, so keyless population... How how did you start getting involved in this, and what keeps you going if it's not a paycheck? So in September of 2020, I was walking through Seattle, and I was just saddened by what our city had looked like. It was during the wildfire season. Um, everybody was staying home due to the pandemic, but what was visible in the city was our unhoused population, people on drugs, litter in our streets. Our parks were taken over by encampments and open-air drug scenes and you know I thought I was going to be one of the people that sold my place and, and moved and that took me about four hours to get over and thought where are all the people who came out the day after our city was uh, destroyed by um, demonstrations due to the murder of George Floyd so on May 30th of 2020 we had you know the blown up cop cars Buildings in downtown were um, looted, broken into, graffiti was everywhere, dumpsters were dumped upside down. 
And on May 31st, thousands of everyday citizens came out and cleaned up the city. And that very moment that I witnessed on May 31st was the inspiration for me to start We Heart Seattle because I wanted to activate that type of volunteerism every single day, year round. And that is what this is, is volunteer-led, boots on the ground, coalition for more beautiful and safe city for all. Is this a nonprofit, We Heart Seattle? Yep. Not only um, did we eventually become a 501c3 status, but, and I have not taken any stipend or pay as the founder and executive director, but I put in $25,000 seed money to commit that this was going to be my obsession. Of your own money? Of my own money. Oh, wow. So unpaid, seeded the money to start and um, didn't ever need to dip into that because donations came in when people started to see the city getting cleaned up. I've never had a grant writer. I've never written a business plan. And we've raised several hundred thousand dollars and have several thousand people in our social media platform and hundreds of volunteers that I can count on on any given day to come out and pick thousands and thousands of pounds of trash out of our shared spaces. And today we're at 575,000 pounds of trash removed out of our city. And it's and over 35 parks and shared spaces have been cleaned entirely by the hands of volunteer and paid staff and homeless who we give basic need stipends to that help in this effort. So it's a it's a complete community effort. Everybody gets involved under the We Heart model. And Kevin, I know has a you have a drug and alcohol counseling license. I do. Andrea, do you have any kind of educational background in this kind of work prior to your revelation that, hey, I can be part of this cleanup and maybe I could even start a nonprofit? Not trained, uh, not educated. I have certainly a heart and some ears and I have our own, like Kevin shared earlier, you know, certainly friends and family who have, um, you know, we all have uh, experience with homelessness mental illness, drug addiction in our families, right? So I have certainly personal experience, um, but not professionally trained. Um, but I am an operator and sales executive in my profession. And so those that operational hustle along with my sales can break bread with anybody. I'm a, a good cold caller. And one of our colleagues kind of referred to outreach as every tent is, you know, a cold call. You don't know what you're going to get into. Then the next time you go out and talk to somebody, they're warm. And then eventually you work them through a process of what product do they need. And it's kind of an interesting analogy to use. And I suppose it could be, you know, criticized in some way. But why not think more private-like? How does private sector think about, I don't want to say, you know, you know, always be closing, but always be housing. How can well, you, you have to persuade, right? Otherwise, if they're not going to accept the services, you can't get to the root of the problem. And the reason why you have to persuade is because there's a lot of ambivalence. There's a strong mistrust in the system, which means anytime you offer services, a majority of the homeless will say no to you, not because they're being difficult, but because they've dealt with the system before and they're done. They're thinking, why do I want to go through this whole process of filling all this paperwork doesn't go anywhere, or I finally said yes, they won't call me back, or the grant lost money. And so it's all about the ambivalence is, well, I want help, but do I want to go through that? again. 
And so this is why we have daily contact is because it builds that trust. Because once a person trusts you, they're more likely to uh, follow through with things. And so that's key. So walking back to the model, which is Kevin's working model in his city of Gresham, Oregon, I didn't know that what I was about to do is this working model and this working approach, a proven a proven model. I started cleaning up the parks and interacting with our homeless occupants, tent dwellers, homeless, houseless, keyless community. And Kevin touched on trust. Nobody else was cleaning up the trash around the encampments. And they were like, who is this lady? What compels you? Why are you bending over and picking up not just one needle, but tens of thousands of needles? And I'm like, nobody else is doing it. And again, you think like private sector, not that I was looking at this as a business opportunity, but it is the same way. There was a supply and demand issue. Were you scared at all? Did you have any kind of trepidation about walking into this encampment area and picking up syringes? No, I never felt scared once. Wow. What do you think it is that separates you from... I'd say probably 99% of the rest of us who are, who are too scared to approach any, anybody who's keyless. I think it is because homeless are stigmatized as being, you know, unpredictable, um, dangerous. There's a lot of homeless on homeless crime, rapes, theft, violence. Um, but it's actually a very, 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 very small percentage of homeless, harming everyday people walking through a park. So, And also look what the system has taught us. Don't talk to the homeless. Avoid them. Let the professionals do it. Keep 20 feet away, right? This is why they're known as the invisible people, because we are told to avoid them. So everyone around us, you know, we said you need to rely on us. We're the professionals and we're the professionals. Of course, the problem is you almost never see them out there talking to these individuals. We say let's flip the script and let's actually everyone approach the homeless, houseless, keyless person as their neighbor and get to know them and talk with them. You'd be amazed. These are incredible people, highly intelligent, funny, interesting, very much like us. They just happen to be homeless and majority of the time going through a lot of challenging things such as addiction, mental illness, trauma, stuff like that. But... Yes, it takes courage sometimes, but even the person, if we approach, yells at us, nine times out of ten, within five minutes, they then open up and apologize. And I think not showing fear and being that everyday, you know, person next door, coming in close, saying hello, picking up the garbage, my hands are dirty, my boots are dirty, I wasn't, you know, standing around pointing that this work should be done by somebody else, um, really bonded myself and my volunteers with the community where this all started, which was Denny Park in, in Seattle, Washington. Um, but the trust built by picking up trash was a missing link in all the other outreach efforts that are done in our communities. A lot of people give out food and socks and clean needles and Bibles and offer a lot of other harm reduction and basic needs. Uh, measure 110, the decriminalization measure. We had a guest on the other day, Mike Marshall, who said all of that money doesn't go to drug treatment um, as as we might commonly perceive it as in like a detox bed or a rehab center. Instead, it goes to 
clean needles, safe smoking kits, et cetera. Well, that was in fact the very first thing I freaked out about. <laughs> I was like, there are needles everywhere. I was the Karen. I was on social media saying, oh my gosh, there's needles in a playground. There are on Bell Street Park. Old people living in my community, senior citizens were saying, my grandchildren will not visit me because there's needles in my park. And I went to the needle exchange program immediately. I was like, what is this? And I went, I walked in and I picked up like, I don't know, like a case of needles and I walked out and I'm like, I didn't even have to turn any in. And I realized that this is broken exchange policy. And I learned out that learned that we fund that in King County and Multnomah County and many counties throughout our nation. But instead of like just leaving it right there and, you know, being a NIMBY, I actually started picking them up. But I was always criticized for that was one of the early on, you know, I think I set the tone that I was this person and I got a lot of shade. But the difference is, is that I went and took action. Why did you get shade for picking up trash? <laughs> I mean, what, what what was the stated reason? My guess at this stage, a year and a half into this, is there are policies written for everyday people and all the other city agencies besides a very specific department trained to get within 20 feet of a tent. It's called MDARS, multi-department rules. And the policies have been written by our city leaders to keep the garbage and the needles where they're at, to keep it visible. That's the only answer why, I have. Why would they want to do that? Well, it feels political, in my opinion, at year and a half into this, that what would otherwise be the reason? Oh, well, it's too dangerous. Well, I mean, you did it. You did it. How dangerous can it be? I, you're not a health sanitation worker. You're not a medical professionals with filled with PPE in your closets. And it's wild. I mean, it's an inanimate object. It's a needle. It's not going to jump up and bite you and poke you in the eye. You, you mean political, there's no political will to clean up these needles appears that they want the needles to stay in place. In fact, Kevin has this great story, and maybe you can tell it, about the kid that yelled at you at Denny Park because you were picking up needles. Yep, a year and a half ago, Denny Park, Seattle, Washington. We were at Denny Park. It was a park with 64 camps, tents, and a lot of trash, and we were doing a trash pick there, and I'd walked over to the playground area near um, kind of one of the swing sets, slides, and found an uncapped needle right underneath. So I just walked over there and simply picked it up and was about to put it into the sharps container. Um, one of the volunteer outreach workers who didn't like us being there ran up to me, filming me, of course, to put on Instagram, I guess, and started yelling me for stealing someone's belongings. And they said, why are you stealing someone's belongings? And I was like, sir, this is a needle. I'm holding a needle. This is an uncapped needle. And it wasn't even an uncapped needle with, like, say, heroin inside, so maybe some value to somebody. It was just an old needle that easily a kid could have sat on. So I picked it up, and they had a complete meltdown that I put into the Sharps container. And it was literally at that moment, because I was kind of new to Seattle. I had joined the movement about two months in. This is Andrea's movement? Yes, Andrea's movement, right? And that was, I think, one of my first visits, and I was just shocked about how radicalized Seattle was. But the moment they argue this, um, th 
they almost immediately became white noise to me because I realized there's no way you can reason with a person like this. So don't try. So I just smiled, put it in, and just went about my, my day. But they would, they would define that as not our property. And this is yep. sort of this and radicalized group of, of activists, although what came out in Willamette Weekly, I don't know, is that a radicalized paper? Because I felt that that was a smear campaign on me. Before every trash pick, we go out there and we introduce ourselves and we get the buy-in and we build that trust and we actually encourage them to participate with the trash picks because we want them involved and then offer them a basic needs stipend. So I would say a high percentage of the trash picks we've ever done in Seattle and Portland, there was always homeless, houseless, keyless people involved. I've seen that on your Twitter feed where you'll say, this is so-and-so, we met him in a tent yep. a year ago. And now he's one of our best trash pickers yep. um, on our team. If we're working with a homeless person who is interested in housing, they might have income, and we find him a traditional apartment that costs money, we'll get criticized saying, how dare you send them to a place they have to pay rent? And we're like, well, they wanted this place, and most people have to pay rent, and they have income. Like, yeah, but for, so they believe, strong believer in the zero, you know, um, zero rent type programs only. Entitlement programs. Yes. So I, I heard Tina Kotek speak and she said, housing is a public good. Have you heard that before? I've heard that, but not from her. I, I didn't mean, know she said I, that. My, based on what she continued to say, my assumption is that she means that it's like healthcare. It's a, it's a entitlement um, and that seems to be... I have heard housing is healthcare. That's a common thing to say now. Right. So it's unfair of you if you're really going to help a homeless person to put them, I guess the argument goes, put them in housing that requires them to pay anything because housing is a public good. Housing's just like healthcare. Housing's an entitlement. It's a basic human right. Is that how the argument goes? It sounds like it. But if with that argument, should any of us be paying mortgages or rents? Like, is it only just the people who are on the streets? Yeah, and I've never, I mean, nobody's ever challenged on it. So I've I've never heard that have to be argued out. I mean, I guess if, if I could play devil's advocate, I suppose they would say something like, um, you might have a pretty nice house, um, but if anything happened to you with that house, you are entitled to something basic like maybe they'd say something like all of us are entitled to rent-free basic housing it might not be the house that you picked that you pay a mortgage on but it's a I, i'm sure that they'd say that it's a basic well housing model it might be a manufactured home or something i've toured hundreds of these places that don't require rent and i've toured ones that require small program fees and rent 10 times nicer and better and some of these free places i would argue my homeless clients are better off in the tents than go into these places. So, you know, they're maybe a good fit for some people, but not all. So Sophie Peel did a piece on y'all in Willamette Week, May 25th, 2022. And it's my understanding, Andrea, that you believe that you were pretty badly misquoted. It was just out of context entirely. It felt like a smear campaign. You have a 27-year professional who ended homelessness or reached functional zero in his city. Who's been in and social, that would be Kevin. Kevin, who's been in social services in 
Portland Metro his entire life. We have a movement where mostly senior citizens were out picking litter. We had the unhoused community helping us. We had poster boy Patrick, who lived in a tent, who's now a case manager, who was leading the event, all of which she didn't quote at all or talk to or tell a positive component of what the headline was a smear to begin with. Um, what a dark, dark place someone has to be, in my opinion, to see through her lens to write what she did when all around her was this magic that was happening. Um, it was very disappointing. It is what is dividing our communities, that type of journalism, if you can call it that, when she's pulling texts and tweets from a year and a half ago that is hearsay. Um, the most disappointing um, thing about all of it is just it was an opportunity to shower a community with this incredible public service day. Yep. We had people from all walks of life, different agencies, everyone coming together. It was a very positive event where we're out there engaging with our homeless neighbors. It was amazing. And it was just frustrating where she mostly just focused on the negative. And, you know, my biggest pet peeve of the entire article is the fact that she referred to our litter picks as, quote, litter picks, as if they're not litter picks, when that's exactly what it was, was a litter pick. I want to say something before I forget, and I was stumbling earlier. This is so telling. And Kevin and I will never, ever speak with anybody again unless it's recorded. We actually did a, what, an hour and a half or two-hour Zoom? It was like, let's just say it was an hour Zoom with her a few days prior, which we didn't record. And we were doing this, telling the story of the movement, how we got engaged, what our working proven model is, success storytelling. And every time she, she you could hear her stop typing while he was going on and on and on and on about all of this wonderful content about who he is and what his service has been in this community for 27 years. And I remember texting Kevin. I was like, she's only typing when it fits her narrative. Did you sense that too, Kevin? I would sense that. And that's okay. You know, I've been born and raised in Portland. Sure, and, she has a point of view. And I've read the Willamette Week my entire life. And to be honest, I really liked it growing up. I just was yeah, disappointed I because I feel so strongly about what we do here every day and making a real, real genuine effort to make a difference, you know, in a very, very sincere and authentic way. For someone to see it through that lens is just so disappointing. Like, did we not get through to her? Like, it's okay to have a different point of view, but we are doing some real, we're doing some real good work, right? And, uh, not like we're desperately seeking validation. It's just this was a great opportunity, as Andrea said, to find a way for everyone to work together from maybe a paper that historically um, has a different point of view than other papers, right? Is, you know, in the, the, in the system, you know, the rule is, is that there's only one model, there's only one approach. And if you're not it, you are canceled. And we are that different approach. And I think that's the problem for We Heart Seattle Portland. We had gone there every day for two weeks, preparing for this pick, getting to know them, knew everybody there. And this guy, 
out of nowhere, we've never seen before and talk, was immediately like, who are you, da-da-da? We're like, well, we're so-and-so. And Sophia's like, I want to interview him. And she gave him the headline of Andrea's tossing out $20 bills like biscuits. biscuits. Right. This lady pulled out a $20 bill like it was a biscuit. Like, do you want to help? I don't care about money. I care that you're intruding on these people's spaces. Was this a homeless person or a volunteer? It was somebody who it was. We may have been. We're not sure, but I think homeless. But he was someone who probably knew them. But we knew everyone else by name. And in while, the encampment. And it was. Absolutely okay for him to have this opinion because the truth is he didn't know who, who we were and we wanted that opportunity to be like, this is what we're doing. And by the way, we already know your friends and everything, but we didn't really get that opportunity because we were trying to explain it. But, you know, he kind of immediately was then getting interviewed Which. by her. And luckily, there are other things, there's other things Andrew's been accused of is, I think it was on the same day, Andrea also steals dogs and sells them. So now that was, I think, by the same person who said that, you know. This the, is from the council member? Well, no. The council member only tweeted half of it, which was this person, we're burglars because we accidentally stepped foot, like, in an abandoned camp, but we knew the person, blah, blah, blah. But they had all, this uh, person who put that out there, made it viral, was that we steal dogs and sell them. Does anybody believe that? We're just lucky that at least Sophie saw that, no, we're not dog thieves. Like, give me a break. She should have looked at that tweet from a year and a half ago and think, is this accurate? Who came up with the dog thief? Was that from the council member? Well, no. This, this, oh, it was, it was a response it, from some rando? And what I'm reason why I'm bringing up the dog theft thing is because the very person who said that um, we're stepping foots in camps and burglars also said we're a dog thief. So they kind of would seen all these crazy things, but they chose the best out of all the thing, crazy things they said. Someone carried with it. Unfortunately, a city council person saw it. And then, boom, a year and a half later, Sophie's like, oh, my gosh, elected officials think we're burglars. So yeah. it's all hearsay. It's like you're, if you're a reporter, you know, do your background search for that kind of stuff. It's like it was so frustrating. Did she get a quote from either of you on that or ask for a comment? Nope. Well, there's that quote who I've never met from that civil rights attorney, Juan, who Chavez. Juan Chavez, who basically implied that we're vigilantes. This is someone we have never talked to once, ever, which we'd love to, but, like, why would you go to this person for a quote? We don't even know who this person is. And then how did you get this quote out of them? And yeah, it's so strange that that's who she picked. We thought, we thought it was odd. So at all we're going to say, we don't want to be, I don't want to be overly critical because Willamette Week is Willamette Week, but just, you know, you should have just given us the benefit of the doubt and like, look, we're, you know, or come out with us. And if you really felt this way on day one of a trash pick, come out for a second one, you know? So we're just, we're just disappointed. This was a real opportunity to kind of maybe, um, bring the city together a little bit more because right now we're very divided. It feels like. I agree. What do you think of the criticism that's in this Willamette Week article that untrained volunteers can endanger themselves and this idea apparently that Central, this is also in the article, the Central City Concern refused to assist y'all or work with you because they believe that you and your volunteers are untrained? That's not true. We never spoke to them either. And actually Clean Start with CCC had been there a couple times and had picked up trash around us. They, they were not official with our pick, but they were there 
two doing their thing. So we don't know this. And let's just get into the weeds with the whole untrained thing. Uh, we've all been told, too, that let's rely on the professionals to work with the homeless, which generally means you have to have a master's degree. So some kind of clinical training, right? Every homeless person can spot that clinical BS a mile away and hates it. What they like about Andrea is her authenticity. Is she's not immediately going to camp and looking at them as if they're subjects. S- someone, they're subjects. Research subjects. They hate it. But Andrea is just like, I'm not a drug and alcohol counselor. I'm not a mental health professional, but I care about you. Let's talk like a real person. And it, cha- and it, and it makes all the difference in the world. And yes, I have the good educational background, but I almost never really apply that to my very first meeting of just getting to know them and building that trust. So I'd say that's, you know, a badge of honor saying untrained. But (laughs) why not? Because sometimes untrained is actually, it doesn't always work. And why can't the social service industry have a diverse employment pool of people with a variety of backgrounds? It's really the only industry that only seems to hire within its uh, academia. But I'm a salesperson, and John Hollister is a sales guy, a software guy that's in the Pearl, who housed 19 people already by going out, breaking bread, getting another story, and offering them a solution that works for them. So I think a, a good mix of outreach um, is needed. I think all approaches should be an enabled and funded and, to participate. Yeah, while we should absolutely have social workers out there and drug and alcohol counselors and CRMs and peer specialists, I'm very close friends with a lot of them. I just, all we're saying is there's also a place for people who just care deeply about this and want to help. Why don't they get to participate, right? Why can't someone from a different walk of life, someone who happens to be, ju- who is a musician, right, who just walks up to a homeless person because they notice they're playing a guitar. Well, I mean, look at, you know, Jose Andreas, the famous chef. He's started his nonprofit right. feeding in, right. in, in areas of disaster. Like, wouldn't it have been beautiful for the headline to be about Judy, who is a senior citizen that lives in the Pearl, who volunteered along a man named... Ben. Ben was his name. Yeah, it looks like that from the article, Ben. Ben. Why didn't Ben get the headline? Ben volunteered. He had a community around him. He was given a purpose. He got basic needs stipends. I gave him a bag of clothes, included Nikes and puffy jackets. And we took him out to lunch. She took him out to lunch, gave him a tavern burger, quality over quantity, like really got to know this person, and instead the article's like, peppered him with questions about his family. At the bottom of the article, well, maybe they are doing some good. Yeah, there was clearly a point of view. I wonder if the reason that she interviewed uh, attorney Juan Chavez is because he's a civil rights lawyer, and my understanding, just based based on the... um, just interviewing people who work with the homeless and Kevin, you'd know this better than I do, but also reading Michael Schellenberger's book, San Francisco is that the ACLU is seems generally opposed to the idea of 
incentive based housing or housing earned because it takes away people's liberties. And they're certainly against things like laws that would mandate drug treatment if if you live in a state where you're found with uh, criminal amounts of drugs, things like drug court. Um, my understanding is they think all of that is it takes away these people's liberties. Have you heard any pushback from the ACLU or anything like that? No. Anybody affiliated? Do you ever get any criticisms about how you're, you're taking away people's liberties because you're trying to convince them to you're you are trying to persuade them to do something that that maybe they didn't want to do until you started talking to them well we've never heard it from the people we're serving we've never heard it from the people that we actually care about and are helping which are the homeless they have never said that to us and i think that's that's the most important thing let everyone else you know let let them fight but at the end of the day we're out there every day getting to know this, this these individuals making real differences. And that's the most important thing is that the people we are helping and serving every day aren't being critical of this. And I think that's the most important thing. And the, the people that we're serving are like, I want to have purpose. I want to get back to work. I want to evolve as a human be- being and be self-sufficient. I want responsibility. I want to be empowered. I hate that you're handing me stuff. Thank you for giving me something to do today. Yeah. Like, work with you guys to clean up the camp. Not once ever does, is some, I mean, even, even uh, a gal, Dre, I was interviewing her. She was actually in my alley smoking dope. And I'm like, Andrea, what are you doing? You know, she goes, I have a beautiful apartment in Bellevue now. I'm like, great. Why are you in Seattle? Because, well, this is where I'm dealing. I go, okay. So she has her beautiful apartment. And I just said, you know, I said, can I, you know, interview you for a minute? And so we ended up talking for 10 minutes and I said, what do you think about all the harm reduction and like safe injection sites and all of that? And she broke into tears and she said, the government is killing me. I don't want to be enabled. Do you think I like this? And it's that allowing and decriminalizing all of this that's killing people. And nobody seems to be asking the homeless what they, what work and the addicted, what works for them. It's all theory and no practice. Yeah, I when Mike Marshall came in the other day, he said that this Measure 110, the drug decriminalization measure, came from a group called Drug Policy in New York City. And um, it, it's really all about de-incarceration and looking at things like structural racism. Um, I don't think, I as far as I know, based on what I've read, uh, it doesn't seem to even consider what, homeless people would want or be interested in. And it seems like, I mean, you guys tell me, it seems like one of the major factors of these, I'm not talking about homeless mama working five jobs, living out of her car. I'm talking about, or a sectioning department where she's on shaky ground. I'm talking about these people in tents. I think they're the people that most of us are concerned with that we walk past every day. And my understanding is the majority of the people in tents have are struggling with uh, substance use, active substance use, and mental illness. Is that your experience? Yep. And a lot of them are in survival mode and have no idea what we're talking about behind the scenes, battling back and forth and debating about different theories and Which policies. Which is crazy because we're doing all this about them. But my, all we're asking is that before you come out with these studies and policies, 
why don't you talk to the homeless and ask them what they want? If you're here to serve them and actually advocate and fight for them, learn the truth, hear it from them, even if it goes against your own narrative, right? Do you have any data about what they want? Do you collect metrics or anything? Has there ever been like a study done, even if, you know, similar to those point in time counts that they do federally? Has anybody ever done any research or collected data on their responses? We've done sort of unofficial type things just out of our own curiosity. For example, a few months ago, we interviewed a handful of people panhandling, just asked, you know, what are you going to use the money for? You know, are you saving up for rent? How can we help? We're curious, right? It's no judgment at all. Just what are you doing this for? Um, two things we learned is a high percentage either had housing already and were panhandling because that's where the money is, or it was to supply their drug habit. So very, it was very rare to find someone says, I'm doing this because I need to save money for an apartment. And so we are trying to understand that so we kind of just know how to help them. This is an example is like I did find a guy panhandling who said, you know, he's, he's doing this kind of for other reasons than housing, but he really loved that we offer this to him as this opportunity to kind of participate in this really positive event. One of the things I find interesting, you know, in our boots on the ground outreach is that not every tent is a home. We've talked about this a lot with the media and different podcasts that there is about 15 other uses for a tent. And often we learn that, you know, they're trap tents or storage tents or toilet tents. Um, one of the guys that has a huge complex in the Pearl has multiple dwellings because he's an admitted dealer. And you have to have multiple places for your users to he's find got it. multiple dwellings in it and it's in addition to the tent? 1,000%. So in Seattle, I was at Denny Park. That was overtaken by trash and encampments and... I didn't realize I was stepping my foot into this working proven model that Kevin Dahlgren was and has uh, managed the homeless crisis in his city. And that is starting with picking up all of the trash and working with the unhoused on what they need and not need and really just reducing the footprint that people are having on our streets and parks. And in doing that, it built trust and relationships. And from there, like hope was restored, and when hope was restored, anything became possible. And one by one, I started housing people out of Denny Park uh, into enhanced shelters, into fully furnished apartments, getting them connected to employment, tickets home. And that's exactly what Kevin was doing, too. And together, we are now this team with this proven model that cities all around the region are asking us to come and launch or consult with them. And so that's kind of where we're at in the story of how Kevin came to found WeHeart was a, a mutual friend of ours on social media said, hey, Kevin, you should meet Andrea in Seattle. She's doing exactly what you're doing in Gresham, Oregon. And he called me or posted on Facebook, and, and the rest is kind of in history, and it's an honor to work with you, Kevin. Well, and that's how you. the two of you connected. Yep. And I'll quick backstory how I joined Gresham is um, owned a house in Gresham and, and – uh, the former mayor, Mayor Shane Bemis, had written a letter to all citizens with a letter about our homeless situation in the city. 
And in the letter, he said, there is nothing compassionate about allowing a homeless person to be on the streets. And I was blown away by that. And I just thought, what? This mayor had the more, more courage than any other mayor I'd ever heard of in my life, the courage to say there was nothing compassionate about allowing a homeless person to live in the streets. I was so inspired by that, not looking for a job, I wrote him a lengthy letter about what I thought about the system, how we can improve it, how you can improve it, how you could reduce homelessness in your city the right way, the compassionate way, all this stuff. And I had nothing to lose, so of course I was brutally honest because <laughs> I wasn't, again, looking for a job. A couple of weeks later, I got a call back from City Hall saying we'd like to meet you. And so I came to City Hall back-to-back uh, -back times talking about my beliefs about how we can make a difference and, you know, what we can do to really, you know, end this crisis in our city. And unbeknownst to me, they were considering hiring someone anyway or looking for that. And on my third meeting, they offered me the job. And so I accepted the job and focused most of our energy working close side by side with um, Central City Concern Clean Start and started cleaning up the Springwater Corridor. We went that we went out there virtually every day picking up hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds of trash, which was 4.7 miles, which is, you know, the length of the city of Gresham. Took about a year. And what we found is that, you know, there was a high percentage of the homeless in Gresham were living in the Springwater Corridor, and they were really surprised to see us every day because most of them had said, we haven't talked to an outreach worker in two, three years. And so we went out there every day, cleaning, 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 outreach, 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 built a trust, built a trust, built a trust, and then really kind of almost magically finally happened overnight where everyone is just like, I think I'm ready. And then it all it became was just a logistical nightmare of then trying to house everyone at the same time. So that took time because that, you know, housing, people don't know this, it's a lot of paperwork. It's a, it takes a lot of time. It's, it's tough. So anyway, that was kind of the magic, and it was very exciting. We restored the Springwater Corridor. We then kind of focused on the parks and everyone else. And, you know, over you know a couple-year period, we saw a very significant reduction of homelessness in our city by just simply having daily contact and offering services immediately to the best of our ability. And so it was, it was magical, and then that's, again... Someone had heard what we were doing in Gresham. They did, a, they did do a small mini documentary on our work. It's an 11-minute documentary produced by the city. In, uh, we'll link to it in the show notes. Two, it's a great documentary. In 2019, I think they did. So they kind of followed a few of us around with cameras for about six months because they saw that some real change was about to occur. So it was a exciting time, and I'm very, again, very proud to now be a part of We Heart Seattle Portland. You, you have to immerse yourself in that community just notice the small changes. And once you get to know them and notice the changes, then you know kind of how to act and react to certain situations. And it's very effective, the daily boots on the ground. And I don't know if I've even shared this with you, Andrea, is it was uh, day one, city employee, Gresham, very excited. I'm like, I'm going to go to the corridor and I'm going to, you know, do my best, right? Is I went out there and the first group of homeless people I met Talked with them. It went really well. And I was out there with the police department. They insisted to come out there with me because at that time it was a very dangerous area. And uh, my plan was to come there the next day anyway. 
but I simply said, hey, guys, it was really great to meet you. I'll see you tomorrow. Every single one laughed in my face. And I remember that moment thinking, oh, my God, they think I'm, this is all BS. They've probably heard this 100 times. Yeah, that you're just I like will see you tomorrow. Else. And it, seriously, like this light bulb went in my head and said, wait a minute, I have to do this every day. I have to be different. I have to do something different. And this was day one. I believe that was October 2nd, 2018. So it's like, I will do this every day. I will be out there every day. And boom, came back the next day and they're like, oh my God. And then day after day after day. And really it was this magic happened about in week two. They're like, my gosh, we're, we now expecting this person. And now we're working with them. And by the way, it's very effective if, you, if you're working with an ambivalent person who kind of is like, I kind of want an apartment, maybe, maybe no. If you're out there every day, they'll be like, yeah, Kevin, I, I'm doing an application, I swear, I swear. Because you're talking to them every day and you're encouraging that. And so that was really magic. And I'm just really, you know, certainly thankful that they laughed at me because that said everything you need to know about the system. And I'm like, I cannot allow this. We have to be different because part of the letter was we got to be different. We have to be bold. We have to be different. And so... And work, work pe- by being there every day, working people through their ambivalence of just not languishing there anymore. And yeah. example after example, hundreds, thousands of examples with Kevin and I boots on the ground daily and people start to see us every day showing up dressed, clean clothes, brushed teeth, hair combed, makeup on. I started to actually see people in Denny Park taking better care of themselves. You know, the women were coming out of their tent and saying, hey, Andrea, I got my food, st- my food stamp card replenished. One man had $2,000 loaded on his food stamp card because that's how uh, he just didn't have the motivation to even go and get social services he was entitled to because he just sat in the tent and waited for people to serve him tent side. And <laughs> now I'll, I, I'll share another one of the ancillary benefits of daily contact. And thanks for sharing that, Andrea. That's awesome. Is after a couple of weeks of daily contact, a few of the homeless females approached me and said, Kevin, thank you for doing this every day. There was a so-and-so who had this lengthy history of sexually assaulting them. And after daily contact, that person finally just left and said, forget this. City employees are here every single day. And so what it was doing is it was deterring negative behavior. And so a lot of our homeless neighbors were like, thank God other people are here. That's not just us because now we feel safe again and protected. And my God, that built trust. Because the fact is, and it's people don't like to talk about it or admit it, Sexual assaults on the street are extremely common, and it, it is not if but when, right? But that daily contact does deter that because you're out there every day. Now, I'm not saying it's happening to everybody, like, in everywhere, but certainly the Springwater Corridor back in the day was very common. And so these females were just like, thank you, thank you, thank you, and they finally just accepted help. And I think this is a great time to segue towards what can the community do? And Kevin, I love when you bring up deterring negative behavior because I know you have a story around your food pantry in Gresham as well and how they and you uh, adopted a code of conduct and that it was enforced that ended camping, loitering, litter, and crime around the food pantry there. But the deterring negative behavior or encouraging good behavior happens when the community, when the presence is there, other human beings. It doesn't have to be 
miracle worker Kevin. It can be miracle worker Judy. Go every day. Go every day with nothing versus once a month with something. Um, We're, of course, seeing a drop in needles anyway because of the rise in fentanyl. And that's in the form of, like, pills and pressed materials? Yes. That way, yeah. It's very popular right now, unfortunately, and it's definitely killing people, or at least overdosing left and right. It's It's changing everything on the streets. I mean, people are more violent. People are willing to do sex trade um, that never did sex trade in the past. I mean, they're so desperate to make that 5 to $10 to get the next pill. Yep. People are willing to do anything. Yeah, Andrew and I interviewed multiple homeless people in the city of Portland the last couple of weeks, and a majority said they can't see one year ahead, and most have said that I'll be dead in a year and that their number one goal in life is to score the pill, meaning, you know, uh, depending on who it is, you know, on average, they use between five and 20 pills a day, depending on the level of their addiction. But everyone we spoke with who uses says, we, I wake up every morning thinking, what am I going to do to do score think, these pills? Do you think, Kevin, that the People's Harm Reduction Alliance is going to start giving out free heroin as a form of harm reduction for people addicted to fentanyl? Well, it's interesting. If you compare heroin to fentanyl, fentanyl is far more dangerous than heroin now. It's 30 to 50 times stronger than heroin. So I certainly hope they don't do that. But ironically, is that not a form of harm reduction? Because it's simply become safer than heroin. Safer than fetties. I'm a drug and alcohol counselor, and I can't imagine any harm reduction be applied to fentanyl. It should simply be don't use it. It is dangerous. It is so dangerous. And once you're hooked, you are hooked. I mean, it is scary. It is terrifying what we've seen out there. It's the worst I've ever seen in my entire career. And it's terrifying. There should be a huge PSA about just don't use fentanyl. And I'd like to see a crackdown in the dealers of fentanyl too, right? Offer the people using treatment and recovery, right? I do support in that respect the decriminalization of the actual use, but not of the dealers because this is killing people. You talk a lot on Twitter about the homeless industrial complex. What can you say about that, if anything? How do you define that? Well, uh, it's important to know that while I am critical, I'm a critical of the system, not the person. So when I talk about the homeless industrial complex, let me just back up to I've, you know, my long career in working in social services is back in the day, You know, I worked in the, you know, young, idealistic man, just fresh out of college, ready to save the world. (laughs) Um, This is why you should get into social work, of course, and social services, case management. And um, I blindly followed my supervisors, listened to the agencies, and just trusted they knew what they were talking about because I was young and they were older and, you know, and, you know, they had big personalities and it was really exciting. And so... I oftentimes say that I was part of the problem because I refused to see the problem. I just sort of accepted the way things were. And then over time, I started looking, you know, really starting to pay attention, realizing, are we actually helping in any possible way or serving it? Because every year we were asking for money, but every year the problem grew. Or so, for example, I worked at a men's homeless shelter for seven years, and we saw the same homeless clients over and over and over again, dozens and dozens of times. And I'm thinking... I don't understand. 
My idea of a homeless shelter was they're here, we work on their housing, they get into housing, then we serve the next person. But it was the same people over and over again for year after year. And so this is what I mean. The complex is just like, I think our approach is all wrong because it, it, we're not actually solving the problem. And why are we, why are the very people that got us into this mess asking for more money to solve it? And so I now strongly believe if money were the solution, we would have already solved it. So the homeless industrial complex is there's a lot of money tied to, you know, the homeless have become in many ways like a commodity, right? They're the product. And they talk about this person is on the streets. Um, they are a victim of, of capitalism or whatever. And therefore, we need funding to help them because they're the ones that fell through the cracks. And whether that's true or not, all I know is that the system in place now isn't helping them the way they should. Because, you know, the definition of insanity is trying to th same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. That's the problem with the system is there's only one model applied to the system. And Andrew and I have a different model in the city of Seattle and Portland, and it's quite effective. And so that's what I mean by the homeless industrial complex is. And when you say it's effective, how do you, about how many people would you estimate you've gotten out of tents and, and off the streets? We, and, and I would have to, I guess I have to clarify that because I know you guys talked about how they'll leave tents and come back. And so as far as you know, permanently out of tents and off the streets. We know permanently for sure 112 people in Seattle uh, are off the streets in Seattle. And, you know, we have certainly worked with hundreds and hundreds of more that we've done referrals. We've worked with them. We've gotten bus tickets but other people got involved, so we're not going to take credit for whether that's more or not, but we know that we are part of the solution. But us directly helping, we've done 112. And so we, we've... And it's just the two of you, right? Well, we also have an army of volunteers, and we actually have a, also um, a couple paid staff. But, you know, it's a very small team, a very nimble team that gets a lot done. But for the most part, I mean, last January 4th, January 4th of 2021 was, I was on a litter pick and by then that was three or four months in and I guess it was the week right before January 4th. So it was, yeah, it was uh, like the Friday. I think the holiday was involved there, New Year holiday. But anyway, a man came to me in crisis. He's like, I need to use your phone. I just found out my dad died of COVID. He was this white male in crisis, high as a kite. Um, crying, snot coming out of his nose, no mask. We were in the middle of the pandemic. I had about 20 volunteers behind me that were picking litter. He was, you know, I, I used this phone. I said, what's your mom's number? Called his mom, Michelle. Michelle says, you got to call, got to call his aunt Sissy. Got Sissy on the phone. And he said, you know, daddy died. I want to come home to the funeral. And they said, they got me on the phone. And they go, he can't come home unless he's clean. And we had a holiday weekend ahead of us, and I couldn't get him in for four more days, which is part of the homeless industrial complex. Is that because you couldn't, not be find, you couldn't find a detox bed? Not open. Holiday weekend. It was, it was, it was the new year. And so if you're ready to get clean mm -hmm. and get sober, and it's a holiday weekend, you may not find a bed because it's a holiday weekend. 
Yeah, there's limited hours, limited staffing. I mean, there's a staffing crisis in the homeless industrial complex. There's thousands of open positions at housing projects in hospitals. It's hard, hard work. People get burned out easy. They're underpaid. They may be maybe the most compassionate, big-hearted, trained people in the world, but we got to get a different mixture of people in this space. Uh, since I'm on this tangent, I highly, if I was in charge, I would hire a executive level HR recruiter who gets paid commission to fill all of these open positions so that people can progress out of transitional housing, progress and land on their feet when they get out of incarceration, out of rehab. So, so that when they're ready, they have an open space to go to, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I mean, you got to act. I mean, Kevin, you're a counselor. You have to act when they're the minute they're ready because that window could close. Oh, gosh. And it closes so quickly. You have to strike when the iron's hot. And, you know, with ambivalence on those rare occasions where like, I'm ready today, I'm ready today. And it could sometimes it's something like I just got in a fight with my partner. I'm so done with them. I really need an opportunity. If you can't find them anything, there is a high percent chance they're back with that partner the next day. Right. Yeah. And so our number one goal, of course, is if the person's ready today, we find a way to help today. What's frustrating is it's really hard to get that done. I will share with you why most homeless people avoid and hate detox is because it's so hard to get into detox. Is like when they're ready to get clean, you know, even in Portland, you have to show up in line middle of the night and hope to get in. Back in the day, even a couple of years ago, you could uh, make a reservation to get in the next day. But they felt like that was too labor intensive. And so now people just show up. And there's there's not enough people once they're through the medical yep. detox to process and the paperwork to get them into housing, into halfway housing. So, so they end up back on the street. So and that's the fear of getting going through it all only to go back on the street. So let's quadruple detox. Let's have four times as many detox facilities minimum, meaning that there's guaranteed an open bed every night. If someone is ready, we make a call, we get them in. Because that could be the one that changes our life, especially since it's the fentanyl and stuff that are killing people left and right. If someone says, I'm done, I'm scared, I'm ready, they could be dead the next day if we don't help them. Well, and that's why I like the housing hospital. Housings are like hospitals. And they're saying, you know, that would be incredible. Convert open apartments, buildings, and turn them into detox housing where you, you don't have to think about, now I'm done, now what? And that's... You can staff them with medical professionals and go right into housing. It's I'm detoxed and now I have a roof over my head. Simultaneous assistance in that way. You're not only housed, but you're engaged in detox. And then when you're done with detox, you're, you're still housed and you can work on the next step, right? Whether that be a treatment center or rehabilitation center. Yeah. You, yeah. um, There's always a bottleneck. It's like, this is the, such the frustrating part of being a case manager in the system is that you could have performed miracle work, built that trust, they love you, they'll listen to you, they'll do anything you ask. I'm doing, I did the paperwork, I'm really excited. And then all it takes is for one other person in the system to drop the ball. Like, and it could be something small, like I had a dentist appointment. I forgot to do whatever. All I know is everything stops. Because I have to rely, we have to rely on other agencies to do their part, and everyone has to do it exactly. And if not, everything fails. And again, you're, like I said, if you, you know, if you got to strike when the iron's hot is if it takes sometimes longer today, 
they start getting frustrated and they start getting ambivalent again and be like, I needed to go now, but now I don't know. And Of course. And or a friend comes along or a dealer comes along. And and exactly. And there's it's very, so much there's so much friction. It's the sim, similar to builders and permits, right? You have to have all these permits lined up before you can break ground. Very similar in social services. And all of that bureaucracy, the red tape we call it, is the homeless industrial complex. It's made so difficult that people give up. I have a client in Seattle. He's famous. His name's Charles Woodward. His nickname is Lawnmower Man. And we had all of his paperwork processed for this beautiful historic building, actually in my neighborhood across the street from me. He was going to be my neighbor. I had a backyard that he could tend to because he loves to do yard work. But he's been homeless in Seattle for six years. It was in December of 2021, and, you know, toured the apartment, filled out the paperwork. All of a sudden, the housing manager was missing in action. Went on, like, Christmas holiday. Nobody transferred his files. Finally, somebody after the new year showed up and, and called us back. So we need – he forgot to – something wasn't filled out, like his social security number wasn't on one piece of paper. Some and pithy detail. It did he, and, you know, social security number is a pretty important number to have, but – like get that right the first time. And then Omicron hit and the ice storm hit and Charles was just like, I will never go through that process again. And I guarantee you that apartment set empty for months because then the next person's got to go. Well, through that. and couldn't they have just collected the social security number later? I mean, couldn't he still get into the apartment and then you go visit him at his apartment it's, and you get his social security number too much friction. I have clients living inside, um, government subsidized housing in downtown Seattle, multiple housing projects, people, three, actually. I have people that work at them who follow my page, who follow the movement, that are employees at three different housing projects, major, major, most heavily funded housing projects in Seattle. And they call me and they tell me, there's 30 apartments available in my building right now. Another one said, I have 27 open apartments with closing doors that have been available for months that are intended for homeless. And I'm like, what is going on? And it's like, the no one is, you know, quote his words were, no one here is competent enough to complete all the paperwork. And it's not their fault that they're incompetent. We're promoting people from street-level outreach, from within, and what we really need, and I talk to Kevin about this all the time, are like loan processors, bankers, realtors, escrow agents. And that's where your good HR idea comes in. Yeah. Because if you were able to do something like that, you could recruit those kind of people. Yep. My, uh, it's not funny, but just, it's uh, last week my colleague called me just to vent. Is he had spent all this time with this very complex homeless person and finally got him to accept help. And again, this just happened. And um, he got the money, everything was set, and uh, all he needed was the other provider to fill out a very simple form, right? Takes 10 minutes, right? Maybe 20 minutes, but they were relatively new at this. And he called him back and says, I'm so sorry, I don't know how to fill this out. I'll let you know. Um, so he told me this early last week. It's been now a full week, and he hasn't figured it out yet. But he, but also, my colleague is not allowed to help him with it. Why? Why is that? I don't know. It's a strict rule from this other nonprofit, and so this person has continued to be on the streets. We're uh, uh, he was able to do a couple day motel stay, but that's all that his budget allows. But this person could have. But here's the thing: is that that empty apartment is still reserved for this individual. 
So it remains empty until this person can figure out the paperwork, but the person doesn't know how to do the paperwork, and the person supposed to help in the paperwork is on vacation. But we're not allowed to help because we're not a part of the agency. I mean, it's just so, it's so it's a mad, mad, mad world. And this is so how common. How are you supposed to get anything done? And how this, are you supposed to get and results? And so my colleague is one of the most passionate people ever that cares deeply about this. And, you know, sometimes he'll just call me and be like, I hate this job. Because he's like, he loves it and hates it. He loves working with the homeless, but he hates the bureaucracy. It's like, this is insane. So, of course, his client is just wavering and be like, F you, you promised me. And and he's constantly just trying to talk with them, be like, no, 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 I'm sorry. Because now it's his fault. But he did everything right. That is the system. Something needs to fix. And, you know, in any other industry, we would have fixed this by now. Say this was private sector. These kind of companies would have gone out of business, but nonprofits continue to get more and more money. They're thriving. Oh yeah, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Say that again. Where's the innovation? There's no innovation in the space. I mean, and they're simple ideas, but in any other industry, we would be out of business. And so how do we re, you know, even this morning I was like, God, I haven't even referred somebody to this particular transitional shelter in a very long time. And I was telling Kevin, I go, even, I think I gave up. I gave up. Oh, my God, I'm a part of the problem. And, you know, you get, it's demoralizing. You, you're, you, 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 you even call, no beds, no availability. In some particular uh, places I do referrals, I was like, I haven't done a referral there in a really long time. And I, I thought about it because I kept getting told that there was nothing available. And I just gave up. I have a lot of other options, but it just it just struck me as how easy it is to just sort of give up on an option because you called 20 times, but it's that 21st time that's very important. You never give up. So I had to give myself a little pep talk this morning. Andrea, tell me about this part of the Willamette Week piece that says um, she quoted you. And tell me if it's cor- incorrect, but she, apparently Sophie Peel quotes you and says, uh, that you said the, ho- the homeless industrial complex coddles and enables homeless people and that mutual aid groups enable and encourage unsheltered homelessness by giving away too much food and tents. And, and if she didn't, if she, if she quoted you correctly, tell me more about that. Honestly, whether if it was on the Zoom call or when we were walking, I feel like that is something that we were talking about on the Zoom call, just like this. We were talking about the homeless industrial complex. We are talking about how we don't hate the player, hate the game. It's very bureaucratic. It's very inefficient. Um, what it, do you say it, to somebody who says, look, the tents and the food are life-saving, and so don't criticize people who give out tents and food? Well, I would say... If you're giving out food, and I touched on this earlier, why not instead let people know where they can go get the food? In Seattle, for example, we have 8,000 hot meals a day from just one agency called Operation Sack Lunch. Eight, noon, and six every day, there's hot meals in Seattle. I just think it's more empowering to teach somebody where to go get the food than to just bring the food and drop it off. Now, if you're engaging and bringing, you know, building a relationship and helping somebody move forward and progress towards another stage of change, great. But we have a radicalized group of mutual aid that their intent is not to get people into housing. 
their intent is to make people keep people comfortable where they are at because they're social justice warriors fighting for housing as a human right. And to them, I did call them enablers. That was the first day, January 1st, 2021, out in Miller Park. Grilling hamburgers on top of trash where rats were literally running around. And I said, why don't you guys pick up the trash and have the homeless pick up the trash too? And I was flippant. And I wouldn't have probably changed my attitude knowing what I know now and the backlash I've gotten from that fateful day or maybe fortuitous day. Because it was right, destiny. Right, because that was the beginning of your journey. It was destiny that day. The day that I called that group enablers. And how about, you know, I like to talk about how to improve the system is there's an entire industry in place to give tents, food, tarps to these individuals. What about using all that money and resources towards immediate permanent solutions? Because if you but add at the root of the problem, but if you add up the time, energy, money spent on this, and then you divide it by the, how many actually homeless people are on the streets in a major city, you find that you could probably actually permanently house them immediately. But then the argument would be, Kevin, and this is good for your audience, is they don't want to give people a hand up to get, say, three months rent or even a year worth of housing because they would argue, well, then what? Then they would have to get a job or else they'll get an eviction status. So this group of people and activists are truly doing everything they can to keep people comfortable with tents and tarps and food until the revolution happens and it won't happen in our lifetime. I don't think. Let's hope not. But, and so what is the interim, right? The interim is shelters first, interim, congregate, you know, the 24-7, like tiny houses, pallet shelters. I get that the Band-Aid approach is necessary because we obviously strongly support a person getting their basic needs met. But, you know, we're talking also about we're hopeful that the system will change towards immediate permanent solutions. And we know that, you know, it's unrealistic that this is going to happen anytime soon. So obviously, if a person is freezing on the streets, we would never say, don't give them this. That's insane. We would never do this. Of course not. I bring, I have. These are people. We have in our cars at all times, tents and tarps, if all else fails. We're just saying it can't be just that. We need to bring, we need to change the conversation and start talking about these immediate permanent solutions. Now, to, uh, you know, rank and file day-to-day worker, they're like, well, that's above my pay grade. So I'm just going to keep doing this, and that's fine. That's why Andrew and I are just pushing for the policymakers and the electeds to start thinking differently about this crisis and start thinking in more permanent solutions. What do you say to people who say that y'all have a savior complex? Well, we... <laughs> cool, because we're here to save everybody on the streets. Right? I mean, that's our number one goal. We wake up every day and be like, how are we going to help this person today? Let them say we're going to say, but I asked to anyone that said that, when's the last time you actually went out yourself and tried to make a difference? Andrew and I have tested this lately in some of the social media, is that we will list five ways we made a difference in our community today. Sometimes it's small, sometimes it's big, right? But we ask them, what have you done? And they never respond. You know why? Because all they know how to do is throw rocks at houses. We are trying to build the houses. We are trying to fix the system. 
we go out there every day trying to make a difference. When you say you're trying to build the houses, are you physically building houses? Well, well I'm using it as a metaphor. You throw rocks at houses or are you the ones building? There's two, there's two types of people. T- tearing down as opposed to building things. Yeah, and it's easy when you're online on, you know, uh, tweeting or something just to attack, to attack, to attack. Our question is, when is the last time you roll up your sleeves and actually were part of the solution? Tell me what you're doing to make a difference. Or are you just a keyboard warrior, right? That's all we're asking. So the yeah. definition of savior complex is when people feel the need to constantly try and help others. Now, how is that a bad thing? <laughs> right? I'm sorry. That's why you said savior. We're like, okay. Yeah. We've never, we don't call ourselves that, but we go out every day, seven days a week with our intention to help somebody, not hurt, but help. Where is everybody else? Help them thrive, not just stay alive. Especially the naysayers. I would like Sophie to be like, look, I volunteer at my church. I do this. I'd like to know, and I would commend her for it. If she does that, great. But my question is, are these people doing this? Are they part of the solution to all the naysayers and the haters who are just like, complain, 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 bitch, bitch, bitch? I'm like, well, okay. So in a nutshell... Kevin and I are disrupting conversations around how to approach the crisis. And why does that upset people? People so who much? are housing is a human right, we are thwarting their progress. That is simply it. It's threatening. It's thwarting the progress, thwarting the progress. They feel of, defensive. I'm getting rid of the garbage. I'm getting people into transitional housing. I may even pay somebody's first three months rent, giving them a chance once in their life to be able to pay the fourth through case management, uh, connecting them to employment, where they would argue, well, now they're going to get an eviction status if they can't, but give a human being a chance once in a while. But it really comes down to we are affecting the progress of their belief system. And, you know, since you've brought them up, and reporters don't really count, but just like the activists and some of the electeds or anyone online. <laughs> sure. We have not a few times, hundreds of times said, great, talk to us on the phone, talk to us in Zoom, meet us in person. Every single one has refused. I've seen that. I, I've seen you be every, attacked relentlessly on Twitter. And every single time you say, please DM me or give me a call, send me your number. And they, and, and they don't. They either don't respond or they say, or forget they, it. Or they make fun of me. They say, oh, we are being creepy. Creepy how? I can't answer my question. I've done this for too long to tweet it. Why don't you talk to me? Well, and Twitter is not a good place and for of course, a deep discussion about And just ever, ever so recently, I suggested that I debate someone who sees things differently than we do, right? And she may have a good point of view. I may have a good point of view. I don't know, but let's debate. Let's just talk. But let's make it public. Let's film it. And maybe I'll learn something from her. Maybe she'll learn something from me. Yeah, that'd be great. Because that's all it is. We're not haters. Outright refuse. You just have a different philosophy. No, no, no. And and it's fine to refuse, but then I get blown up saying like you're harassing, you're harassing her, you're ma- you're you won't can't know for an answer. I'm like, look, I've only asked ever asked it once over a one day period, and that's what we're getting is that they will not talk to anyone that sees differently than they do, and that's so frustrating. Andrea has handed out her phone number. Hundreds of times online. And is anybody taking you up on it, Andrea? 
No. So not a single person has taken either of you up on the invitation to have a deeper discussion about this. So like what we're doing today. So like say you and I did not see eye to eye. And speaking of which, we've offered to do podcasts with everybody. And Sophie said we do conservative podcasts. No, actually, we do podcasts. We talk to everybody. So for her to imply that somehow it just has to be conservative, we talked to him because he wanted to listen. So if, if Willamette Week had a podcast, you'd be happy to come on. Yeah, because we have nothing to hide. We would talk. Of course. In fact, we'd prefer it that way because now it's not like we're being misquoted and we didn't say this or why didn't she add this. Now it's real time. It's all just recorded. It's all recorded. But I mean, right? it, it is, I've had vast, a few community leaders in Seattle to sort of moderate this discussion. And they're all like, what's the point? It, it's just like, it's religion. It's ideology. It's just two separate people, two separate think. Uh, two separate ways of approaching this, and it's philosophical ideology. Ideology, ideology. No, that's right. <laughs> um, ideological differences on the approach, and, and when I put people through second chance employer uplift Northwest, where you don't even have to pass a urinary a drug test, you don't have to pass. You can have be a sex offender if you want on your background as example, and people go back to work, and they chastise me for saying Andrea makes people go back to work. And I think that work is important. Everybody should work. Everybody can and should work. Why is that so controversial? Is that because of this housing is a public good, housing is a human right deal? That any work involved for that housing, therefore we should shelve and forget about? Is that where this is coming from? I mean, this... this idea that work brings some sense of dignity and pride seems to be very controversial. It does bring dignity and pride, and it's a virtue in my opinion. It's not my opinion. It's actually thousands of years old opinion that work is a virtue. And um, if, you know, well, okay, they have substance use disorder or have mental illness or are a victim of childhood trauma. But then lots of people that have all of those three things are also going to work in very beautiful homes. And we have examples in our lifetime of people who have it all, who commit suicide, who, who overdose on drugs. Probably the the majority of people are doing drugs in their Yep. Paid for homes. And we greatly value the opinions of the homeless people we work with. They are the experts. They know homeless more than us three will ever know in our lives. It doesn't matter how much time we spend there. They live it. And and because of that, and we care and we're not just talking about them like as you know, we're using an example of uh, two different points of views, always just talking without having the homeless person involved. Andrew and I are involving the homeless are going to uh, with um, an advisory council for WeHeart of uh, living experience homeless people. That means people, oftentimes it's called lived experience, but we've decided to make it living experience of people who are currently living outdoors today that aren't ready to accept help. For a variety of reasons, they're just not ready. 
let's listen to them. Let's listen to it at the street level, the rawest level of what's going on and trust that they know what they're talking about rather than uh, make an assumption that we're somehow smarter or better than them because of our education experience, maybe because we don't use, right? So we're relying on them to help advise us to even get better at our approach and stuff. This obsession with you both online, because you do have a different philosophical point of view, how, how are you able to keep, to keep momentum, to keep going with all this negative focus? How do you block that out and move forward? Well, first, if we didn't move forward, they win because we have a voice and we know what we're doing is right. Not necessarily meaning they're wrong. It's just we're different, right? Well, you're, you're getting and results. In the, we're getting results. And the fact is a lot of people who tried to do what we're doing got bullied into just submission and like, ah, oh, I can't handle this. Too much drama and stress. But if not us, then who? Someone has to be that person. I don't know anybody else doing what you're doing. You have to have that thick skin. And again, do you think we like this? We want to work together. We hate this negativity and the attacks. It's like, God, this is such a waste of time. Like, My de-escalation training has only ever applied to the activists that show up in camps and get in my face with their phone. Oh, do you have de-escalation training? Yeah, I've never had to, you know, well, I mean, I guess maybe a couple times with an unhoused person, but my tires have been slashed. My boss has been called. My corporation in Germany has been called. Our family has been contacted in other states from these activists saying, like, I mean, they're harassing family members in other states now. I've had flyers of my face and my volunteers. Yeah. I saw that. All over, you know, I mean, I, I would just like to say, have your difference of approach and philosophy, but be kind. You know, even Sophie, like, you weren't very kind. You can call, call out maybe... Uh, uh, your point of view and it not maybe being a working approach in your opinion, but the unkindness that's happening, the divisiveness has got to stop. And we need a leader in our communities that stand up like Sophie could have done or Erica in Seattle to step up to their base and step up to their readers and say no more divisive rhetoric and commentary. Stop it. Somebody has to step up and do this. Why is no leader willing to do that? Because they don't have the thick enough skin to deal with the shade because they won't stop. Yep. Well, because the loudest voices in the room are, I mean, just from my observation, this is purely anecdotal, the loudest voices in the room are housing first, houseless, quote unquote, advocates. And they are, I believe, the vocal minority. Oh, so you think there's a silent majority that I do. is on board with your, with your approach and would support it? We think so, yes. 100%. What do you base that on? Well, just based on the people we talk with who are just in the shadows, who talk us just on the down low, that we hear this every day, is that, you know, they are the vocal minority, the loudest, very effective too. But I think there's a, honestly, how do we notice is we're seeing um, elections change. I was just going to say, I mean, look what happened in Seattle. Look, look what happened Talk in Seattle. That. Look what's happening in Portland. 
Is Look the what fact might happen is in San Francisco or California. There is a more of a moderate movement happening in major cities. What's the moderate, for those of us who don't know, what's the moderate well, movement just, in Seattle? Well, well, Seattle's a perfect example is we, um, Mayor Harrell, who is thought of as, I guess, a left-leaning moderate for sure. Well, I would say that it's, it's, it's a, the leftist, leftist liberal is still not in that fringe saying this is unbalanced. And they have changed the way they're voting. It's, I would say it's like less about being more moderate or centrist of left liberals, of which I identify as, is like, well, this isn't actually the party or the politics or the policy that I subscribe to. So I don't want to, I'm going to change the way I vote this year because there needs to be rebalance, even if that meant voting for a, and even though it's a, a nonpartisan position, but our city attorney is a registered rep- Republican. So it, it's about liberals, Democrats, re, be wanting to rebalance what their party stands for. Because this is not okay. There's nothing compassionate about what's happening here. And, and Seattle's a great example um, where we've, you know, a mayor who's, I guess, again, I guess he is moderate. I mean, he's, he's a Democrat, but he's, yes. where he's rebalancing, you know, he's, he's taking action and restoring our parks and shared spaces. Um, our, we have a new city attorney and um, another council member that rebalanced our, our current city council. Kevin, one of your most popular Twitter posts was about a two-year-old that you found in a tent that you deemed, you took a photo, and it absolutely supports what you said, unfit for human habitation, needles, feces, moldy clothes, and food. Mm -hmm. Child's parents declined housing multiple times. CPS was called, but CPS concluded the child was safe. And then you end your tweet with, this is why I call it the homeless industrial complex. So is the idea behind that, I mean, there was a lot of horror uh, from people, including myself, about the idea that a two-year-old was living like this. Is the idea from CPS that you can't take a child away from their parents? Well, where is the protection for the child? Like... That's what I'm confused about. It's like what when, is what is what the policy that's preventing them from removing the child call, and sitting in feces? Because of parental rights, which we support parental rights, but in this situation, hell no. It was terrible. I mean, feces and needles with a and, two-year-old. And it's very frustrating because you know I have, we have a history of calling them, and um, um, I I'd say even about a few months before that I had called them and they um to report another child CPS yeah we found in the woods and how many kids have you found in the woods well a lot back really? in, back in the day but no longer certainly what's you know, the difference a lot what of happened? The families. well in my community in Gresham we just helped all the families and now that's extremely rare in fact I don't I haven't seen a kid out there for a couple of years I'd never see kids. But it certainly was very common in like Portland Gresham back in the day is I had called, uh, I, was a vo- I was volunteering that day doing outreach and found a kid kind of in the deep woods, isolated. I didn't even know where the family was. And I'm like, I think I need to call CPS, right? And uh, um, the lady responded with, um, 
um, poverty is not a crime. I'm like, what do you mean? I don't, that's not where we're. This isn't I was about like, that. I was like, ma'am, I'm, because she asked, are they homeless? I says, well, yeah, I, yeah. I'm like, well, th- this isn't a, that's not what I'm saying. Right. I'm like, this is about the needles this and the is, feces. This is a kid barefoot walking over. I mean, I couldn't even believe it. And she hung up and I'm just like, oh, you, you're killing me here. Like where, who, who's out there to protect a child? Now, of course I updated it though and know that she's the, the, the um, husband took off and the mom and the child are currently in a motel and doing better. But it is devastating and frustrating. Like where, who, you know, who's protecting the ones who can't protect themselves? Did you offer the parents services or what did you just encounter the child alone? No, we, we, we had met the parents too. And what were your conversations with them like? I mean, it sounds like the mom finally well, went into a no, motel. Knowing that we can't, you know, even if, let's say the police and fire show up, the parents have all the rights. We just have to talk them in to hopefully to hope to God accepting help. So when you talked to them, they were not ready to accept help? Nowhere near ready. Very, very frustrating. So, of course, all you can do is daily contact to at least bare minimum welfare check on the child. So did you just keep doing that? Yes, not me or others. And then, and then you finally saw that the man yes. had left, and the woman and the child. You and learned that the woman struck, and the child were in a motel. And this is a this is another good example of daily contact. Is we knew the the husband was a big part of the problem because he was the heaviest of the users and one who was kind of controlling the situation. And once he took off, boom, the mom's like, "Oh heck yeah!" She was freed up to accept. She help. was freed up, and yeah, she's not perfect, but far more easier to work with and is doing much better. So that's daily contact because daily contact is we saw the change, we saw the opportunity and boom, helped it. And I did this all just simply as a volunteer too. So like, you know, anybody can really do this. You see this, you do something, you talk with them, you get to know them. But that was a, that it's very frustrating when like we, we have this entire system in place, the safety net, if you will, to help these most vulnerable people. And I don't think they're getting helped as much as we should. And when they say things like poverty is not a crime, that's not what I was talking about. Like if I'm calling about someone under five years old in the woods without shoes or a shirt, that should be a concern. Sitting in feces and needles. That should be a concern of yours. Well, I'm, I'm using an example of two different kids now, I'm thinking, because I had called a few months before on another kid in the deep woods. Oh, talk about that one. Well, it was just a, a similar situation. I'll just say it happened in Oregon um, and not Gresham. I was a volunteer again. And how long ago was this? About six months ago. Wow. And Relatively recently. Yeah, it was just not that long ago. And I was out with some volunteers and found him alone, and he was barefoot and uh, running through the woods and bare, you know, and was running, again, across some needles and stuff. And we're like, we got a call to f- see if someone can help. And uh, they, you know, first question was, where is their parent? We're like, we don't know. Like, how can you help in this situation? So we finally did actually find the mom, and we're really concerned about the situation, but basically CPS says there's nothing you know we can really do. So are you, is anybody in daily contact with this no, child? No, not, not at all. This was a case where this was way out of our jurisdiction, but we did report this to other people that were going to follow up, but they're just not as persistent as we are. It's heartbreaking. And we see these things. And for whatever reason, in Oregon, there's a lot more younger kids on the streets. It's different than Seattle for some reason. Why do you think that is? Well, I'm not really sure, but certainly I have never housed more families than I have than in Oregon than, say, Washington. So 
I wasn't there, but even with launching We Heart Portland, 9, 10, 11 mm-hmm. kids were actually living in cars or vans. I wasn't there. I didn't see it with my own eyes, but can you speak to the conditions they were living in? And like what? little kids? I wasn't yeah, all... Um, so these aren't teen runaways in no, their own No, 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 no. It was a family of nine, you know, uh, mother, father, but um, uh, different fathers for some of the kids. But... Um, uh, seven kids, all under the age of 13. I think there were four, six, eight, and very young and very vulnerable. And they were all living in one small car together. So extremely cramped, you know, and that was really devastating. Now, the beautiful ending to the story, of course, is we were able to help them and then get them connected to family very, very quickly. But as Andrea said, there doesn't seem to be a lot of homeless underage kids in Seattle that she's seen, and she knows 70, 80% of the homeless in Seattle. If that family wanted services, could they call and get those services? I would say it's a little easier with vulnerable kids. It's generally easier to get help. Yes. This is where I'm going to be commend, you know, like the, the, the system is that if you have a child, it's going to be a little bit easier. Still not that easy, but it's easier. That's my understanding. So I'm wondering what the missing piece is. Is it just that the parent isn't ready to call for the services? That's the problem is say even a nine-year-old in the car says, Kevin, I need out of the situation. There's not much I can do because of the parents. If they ever, and I've had a few in my career, a few times, usually older than 10, 10 to 12 year olds would be like, I hate my life. They'll say things to me like, I hate, I hate, I hate this, right? And the parents are usually kind of, you know, middle of their addiction. And it's just devastating to see. They're not ready to get, so to accept services that might require them to get sober. And generally speaking, they're somewhat okay parents as far as they're not physically abusive, but they're abusive in other ways. It's like the fact that they're okay living in the car where this kid's like not in school and because they're using... That's another level of abuse. And I've seen that many, many times. Well, Schellenberger talks about this in his book as well, that if there was a housing crisis, um, there would be women and children on the Tenderloin skid row right. in, in the blade, and there's not because there is housing and there are resources and there's a lot of money that come in specifically for families and children. It's the people that aren't really willing ready to get off of drugs. Service resistant. That we're seeing on the streets. So that's it's just a kind of a telling. Is it about housing or is it about resisting services? So, Kevin, one of the criticisms about the post about the two-year-old with the photo was that, and it sounds baseless, but I feel like we should just get this on, on the record that this didn't happen, um, that you threatened the mother with taking her child for refusing to accept your quote-unquote services. Well, first, I didn't read that, and obviously they weren't there. But let's just say on the record, no, we didn't do that. She was alone with the child and readily accepted help. But Eventually, the, yeah. Well, yeah, when she was alone. But welcome to Twitter. Well, and <laughs> I've not Twitter actually brought a woman who I've known since Denny Park. So over 14 months, she was living in an encampment, in and out of shelters. Um, Her best friend had passed away that weekend. 
And we went and checked on her and we're like, you know, how about accepting some services now and got her indoors 24-7 enhanced, beautiful women's uh, transitional housing with TV rooms, laundry rooms, you know, bunk beds. I gave her probably like $4,000 in donations to go inside and make friends with all the women there. I cleared my closet out, set her up really great. And we were attacked by somebody that was an employee working for the shelter saying, we don't work with, we hurt. And the this girl was like, can I not go inside? And I go, no, no, no. This is an activist who drank all this BS Kool-Aid about us. Um, but she looked at my client and said, are you here against your will? And Chris and Tina was like, what? Like they basically thought I kidnapped her and brought her into the shelter or adult. And, and this was a shelter employee on the clock, supposed to wear in the shelter hat. It's okay what your personal views are off the clock. Feel free to tweet about us all night, but not in front of our client while working at the very shelter that's, by, by the way, publicly funded. And I, I don't want you to edit what I just said out, but I, I should just reiterate that we get donations all the time. And I didn't use the donations to coerce her to get, take the shelter. It just so happened I was providing a really nice box of stuff at the same time for the employees to hand out to the other women we came with a lot. So was this and woman we were, refused? No, we. But it was like we all sat there, and two other employees. It was said, hard to get her in. She was. They were like, y- "Yes, you can stay here, but do you want to?" Like as if we had brought her there in some way against their will, and it was, you know, three dimensional interaction that you, something you would see on Twitter, and so of course we escalated it to the executive director. We ended up having an in person meeting the next week, and said, "In any other." industry, their license would be revoked. Your license would be revoked if you acted that way in your field, you know? And we, as far as we know, she got some kind of, or they reprimanded, um, but it was just absolutely egregious that the activist class is acting out unprofessionally at their jobs, but they also do, they are infiltrated throughout the social services system as well, and they are elected leaders, as we all know. Mark Dones runs our King County Regional Housing Authority. I know you have activist class running positions of leadership here in Multnomah County as well. We have to rebalance who's at the table. And what's the documentary that we watched the other day about the, the I think it was filmed here in Portland, the woke, the woke documentary. Oh, the one with Peter Bogosian yeah. and Susan Griffin. Mm-hmm. Susan's been on the show. So you... You know, there's there. It's all just about being rebalanced in social services and government, and showing up to vote. And hopefully, movements like We Heart Seattle, our chapter, port, our chapter here in Portland, is is waking up the community, waking up apathetic voters who maybe don't show up anymore because they don't know who to vote for because everybody's fighting, and to embolden them to get outside, be present in their community, wake up their neighborhood associations talk to their houseless neighbors, help influence policy that's ineffective by showing up to the meetings, all of that. I think it's called the Woke Reformation. I can't remember the name So you can find it on YouTube. And to anyone who's listening, both fans and not fans, uh, we will talk to anybody. I'm putting it out there. We will talk to anyone. Email us, call us. We will talk to you. Okay? 
because we have to find a way to work together. We are not the attitude, it's us against them, right? We see value in all different models and all approaches. What do you say to people who say, well, homeless people don't want to go to shelters because they're dirty and they're unsafe and they're tense. They, they believe that their tents are cleaner and safer. That is somewhat factual. Okay. It's true. I worked in a shelter system for many years. It's a challenging environment. It's not for everybody. For some, it's great. For some, it's extraordinarily triggering. Um, working in a shelter, just as an employee, feels traumatizing. There was fights every day and a lot of issues and a lot of, you know, you see a lot of overdoses, a lot of seizures, just a lot of infighting. It's just a very challenging environment. So I totally get it. I've always said we need to rethink what shelters are because shelters, the warehousing thing, uh, seriously, half the men that, men and women that go there are doing it because they have no other choice. What would your plan look like? Well, I would like to just redesign the shelters and make them less warehousing and maybe smaller rooms, meaning still possibly bunk beds, but not of 90, like the shelter I worked at for six or seven years is one large room with 91 men. But I guess until we get that figured out, if we want these people out of tents and, and if part of your mission is to get people out of tents and into detox, uh, drug rehab, mental health, treatment, uh, where do they, where do they go? I mean, if, if you agree that shelters, that a tent might be preferable to a shelter, how are we supposed to get them out of the tent? Well, you sometimes can skip the shelter again, they're for some people, but if like, say they want to go to detox residential, you don't have to go to a shelter first, right? You can transition directly from the streets to a long-term program. So again, shelters do have their place. And well, I, and 99.9% of these people that you interact with are dealing with drug, substance use, addiction, and mental illness. And so maybe under your rubric, they don't go to shelters. They go to treatment, and we make that treatment more available, yeah. and we get it available that minute that they're ready to get help. Yeah, if you had the system in place to strike when the iron's hot and do an immediate permanent solution. And same with mental health. If you're ready to take care of that, we get you into a facility somewhere where you can voluntarily do that. It would be amazing. And in my experience, I'll say you quoted, you said 99.9, and I know you're just trying to make a point. In my experience... Yeah, you tell me. I don't know. It's... um, we call it co-occurring disorder, which means both middle like of your... Like a comorbidity di- or something? Where you're both in the middle of your addiction and mental illness. It's about 70 to 80% of the time on the streets. Uh, you're saying a, a conglomeration of both or either? Usually both. Uh, What's the a, other 20%? Of, if I'm in a tent, no, why am I in a tent? No addiction, no mental health, illness. And why am I in a tent if I'm not... If it I'm functional? could be for other hardship reasons. You I'll know, tell you. Medical is very common. Uh, Debt. They're, they're, they staying off the grid. They've got child support debt. Um, yep. I have people telling me that live and work in the shelters, that people are in the shelters that have full-time jobs. It's a great way to save money. Oh, because they're not getting garnished. They're not. Well, if, if you're, if you have a day job, a cash job or a paying job where you're, where you're paying taxes, it's still a great way to save money. And there's people that take advantage of our shelter system Camping's fun. Remember, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. So if somebody's choosing to pitch a tent and live in a nice park, 
and making the most of it, they're, you know, the people that are choosing to stay there that don't have all this other stay there. I see. You're not necessarily talking about these people that we're looking out on at the sidewalk that are in these garbage strewn encampments. You're talking about, say, somebody who's pitched a tent on forest land. No, well, they also stay inside the city as well. I've met many people. I've met in 15 men that actually came up from Guadalajara to work the Home Depot jobs and have a three-year plan to live in one of our parks. And they send $1,000 back home, which great workers, great culture, not judging, but you can't stay in a park, you know. And so eventually that park got swept, you know. But there are hardworking people that live in tents to save money. There are hardworking people that live in tents to stay off the grid because they have one, one of my clients has nine children and he will never go back to work because like 80% of his, you know, irresponsible, estranged, uh, deadbeat dad, you know, I mean, I like the guy actually personally, but he is running from debt. One question that comes up frequently is if they're in tents to save money, why don't they just move to a, you can work at a Home Depot in, you know, not Portland, not Seattle. You can work at a Home Depot, uh, in Oakland, Oregon, outside of Well, here's a really great example that's where you're going on this. There was, again, the, the group of men that were living um, in the park. And I said, why don't you put your tent by the Home Depot? <laughs> and he goes, well, I go to the Home Depot in Shoreline, which was not city of Seattle. And he goes, I get kicked out there. Plain and simple. It's a matter of enforcing illegal camping or not. So they pitch a tent in Seattle because it's they can even though they work in Shoreline. Correct. But wouldn't also their cost of living be cheaper in Shoreline? Like a bottle of milk is cheaper in Shoreline. Why They just don't want to use extra pennies to house themselves? This is like so puzzling. It is puzzling. I don't really have the answer for that. It's, yeah. it's I mean, puzzling. there's free food all over the city. Uh, there's pantries. I mean, there's food being thrown away. They can't give it away. There's so I much mean, food. You could get, get all that in an apartment in Shoreline, right? So I don't know. It's just so it's, strange it's to just me. Saving, saving money. I've banking. never met a functional adult who's, I, I mean, I've worked with a lot of poor people. I, I've known, I mean, my dad was homeless. My sister's homeless. I, I've just, I've never met somebody who, who can um, be in an apartment or be housed or even be in a shelter who chooses to pitch a tent who, who isn't on drugs or mentally ill. No, I didn't know that. Can you share a little bit more and are they local? Um, sure. My sister is not local. Um, and my dad died, unfortunately. I'm sorry. It, it, and it wasn't, he wasn't on drugs. It was just like really severe mental illness out of control. And he had a stroke and he died. And what state does your sister live in? My sister lives in Washington. Washington. Okay. Yeah. But not Seattle. And she's super transient, like Last I heard, near the Canadian border. Okay. Well, we are happy to try and help her if you can ever get a hold of her. And if she calls out of the blue, Thank you like, you. talk to these people because I promise you we will be able to help her. We will find a way, okay? Thank you, You should Kevin. know that. Thank if you, she, Kevin. I'm, I'm assuming she'll call sometimes. She probably does. She doesn't. She doesn't. Well, if she does, be like, I know I have some friends and they would really like to help. Trust them. And we will try. We promise. And and maybe this was the wrong thing to do, but she doesn't call anymore because, um, you know, her drug addiction started when she was a teenager on opioids. And when 
I first, when I got my first job, she would call and ask for money. And I said on the advice of my therapist and my NA and Al-Anon meetings, um, Narconon meetings, uh, I will pay for a residential re- rehabilitation, which is what the doctors were saying she needed, um, inpatient, but I can't have you continue to call me like this. When you're ready to do that, let me know. And I'm, I am happy to pay for that. And I haven't heard from her since. Well, it's, it, it still was. And good. maybe that was the wrong thing to do, but. It probably wasn't the wrong thing to do. You still kept an, you still had an open door for her. When she's still ready, do. she's ready. Still do. You do. Always will. Yep. And let me share my own experiences with my family is in 1994, my brother ended up uh, developing a habit and ended up on the streets of Portland, Oregon. So he was street homeless, Portland, Oregon. I was 24 years old in college. Um, I had actually done a lot of volunteer type work and stuff, working with the homeless and stuff, and was very interested in it, but still pretty dumb. No 24-year-old is really smart. Um, I was angry at him because he had stolen from me multiple times. He stole my leather jacket, some tapes, which shows how long ago this is in the 90s. And I was like, F this guy. I was mad because when you're in your 20s, possessions are very important to you. Now that I'm 51, I don't care, right? I don't need a lot of stuff. Out of the blue, he called me one day. I had not talked to him for six to eight months, right? And he was like, Kevin, I need help, right? And the, really it was a defining moment in my life where a voice in my head told me, because uh, I was feeling angry, I wanted to tell him off, right? Because I had spent, like, saved up, like, $300 for this leather jacket, and that was, for me, really cool. Is a voice in my head says, now is not the time to be mad at your brother. And I don't know who said it. I'm just saying, whoa. And I was like, all right, come home to my apartment right now. And I lived in a studio apartment with cockroaches, and it was terrible, right? But he says, I want you to move in today. I just let it all go and says, please move in. But I can't have you using. And he was, you know... Um, using speed. And when I saw him, it's like he was, had wasted away. He had lost 80 pounds, completely different person, really long hair. And just, it was just devastating, right? Hugged him and just said, all right, you're going to live with me. So over the next several months, I really learned and understood what it was to live with a person in the middle of their addiction from the streets. But he recovered really quickly because he got a lot of really strong family support because he was ready and he called me and uh, we finally got him into Oxford housing, which is recovery based housing. And he thrived even more. And then he finally got his own apartment, finally started working, went to school. Long story short, that's, this was 1994. Um, he has a new child in a loving relationship, has a house, and he makes a better living than me. And so he's thriving. And so he, I was mad at him, but sometimes you got to let that go. But I'm not going to lie. I did exactly what I did. I'm like, You yeah. know, I think, me, you know, if anybody's listening to this and has a family member who is um, in active addiction, I found Al-Anon and yep. um, Narconon type family-based programs which are the the ones that family members can go to. And frankly, just Ellen on meetings, yep. and you can introduce yourself as a relative of an addict alcoholic. And there is 
I thank God for those people. There is so much support there. I spoke at my brother's 20th birthday. And by the way, his date of sobriety was the day he moved into my house. And he's never used since. And so it's now been like 27 years or so. But on year 20, I spoke at Al-Anon and just said, this is, and I told the story. That's such a good story. And it was amazing. And so he was downtown. He was somewhere around here. And he described me years later that he had been living under a bush, stopped eating, and had just given up all hope. And at the, what he told me was his divine intervention, you know, because that voice in my head, I'm like, whoa, that's crazy, is that he found a quarter in his pocket to call me. And he said, I was out of money for three days. And I know this because a quarter would have bought a candy bar, right? Cause, and uh, he used that quarter and he remembered my number and called me and I just happened to answer. Wasn't a cell phone in those days, so I just got lucky that I was home, answered the phone, and the rest is history. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to donate to your organizations? Kevin and Andrea, how do they find you both and, and contact you? Let's say they want to volunteer. How do they do that? Go to weheartseattle.org or our WeHeart Seattle Facebook page. Um, there's over 5,000 members. It's very, very positive and action-based. Um, people wonder where I'm at if I don't post every day. It's just a breath of fresh air, a lot of positive storytelling before and after pictures. So benefit in numbers, join the coalition. There is also a We Heart Portland Facebook page. We only have about 125 members, so we would love to have more people join that Facebook page. Absolutely follow Kevin Dahlgren on Twitter. His handle is at WeHeartPrez. For your daily dose of his charm, wit, and insight to 27 years in the social service, admitting to being a part of the homeless industrial complex himself. And um, the website has a big green donate button. We do pay for basic needs stipends, uh, frontline workers, um, you know, and all the administrative infrastructure that goes into the nonprofit to run it. In 2021, we just filed our 990 over 75% of all of our money went to the program or frontline, which is frontline services. We don't have a lot of overhead. And as a reminder, as executive director and founder, I've been a volunteer since inception. So I did miss, I did miss a 1.30 meeting with my very big client. So maybe after. Oh, no. Oh, my I'm, gosh. I'm so sorry, <laughs> okay. Andrea. I might have to ask to okay. fund my yeah. salary in the next five years. Well, uh <laughs> Everybody go and (laughs) click on that button. And I am so sorry, Andrea. Thank you so much, both of you, for coming in. Not a problem. Thank you for having us, Kristen. 